Hi everyone, welcome to the Rectac podcast. I'm Paski. I'm Flocky93. And our special guest today is... Sexy Writer Boy. <laughs> Hi, Sexy Writer Boy. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi. Um, yeah, you have a great name. You have a great username. Uh, yeah. What's the story behind that? Um, I was one of the, the first users on there, and it was kind of trying to be funny. And now that I have to say it out loud, it sounds a lot less funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're, you're sexy, and uh, your voice is also very sexy, I must say. Thank you, Pesky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you actually were the reason why we got banned from the app store for the first time, because the original app was uh, Peggy 12 or so. Okay. For some fucking reason, and uh, basically um, every time you submit a new version of the app, uh, the nice guys from Apple actually, uh, physical people actually look at the app and, and try to search for obscene or, or sexual content. And so somebody must have searched for sex or something like that, and your name came up, and they sent us a screenshot with Sexy Writer Boy, okay. said, well, your app is now 17 plus. <laughs> really? Okay, so you're only allowed to be sexy if you're over 17. Absolutely. Right. According, according to Apple rules, yes. Okay, that sounds fair. I'll bear that in mind next time. Right. Your username is the reason why uh, I guess we have less users then, I guess, because mm. otherwise we would have 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, I'm actually pretty grateful that we don't have this 12 and Because then we would have lawsuits. By, uh, no, 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 because we had basically, we, we had some younger users and the content they produced was just simply not as great as we expected. Oh, right, okay. So we had one that, one, one username was Green Hitler, the other one was oh, right. uh, basically talking about how he likes boobies and döner. So, yeah, not that interesting. Yeah, but the yeah. thing is, I know a lot of people who are above the age of 30 who talk a lot about how they like boobies and donuts. <laughs> Could be that as well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the second part of your username is Boy, and yes. so you produce a lot of content for various uh, formats. Yes. Could you tell us more about that? Um, so, I pay my rent by writing for different startups um, and people who... Generally in Berlin, everybody speaks unbelievably good English, but writing good English with a narrative and a storyline when it comes to papers, articles, speeches, that kind of thing, is uh, is, is tough. So right. I rely upon that fact to get myself paid for things. Mm -hmm. And um, so at the moment, just before coming here, I was working on some some articles for a, for a company that I would do a lot of work for. It was about... In, how to specifically get musical YouTube channels more followers, for example, that that kind of thing. And so oh. I work on that. But then uh, when I'm not doing that work, I write fiction. So mm -hmm. I write novels and uh, screenplays. Nice. Is your first novel already out? I mean, we talked about it once, and you uh, you basically said, tell, tell us a little so bit about I, it. So I, I finished it at the end of last year. Mm -hmm. So this is now August. This mm -hmm. is, what, eight months ago. Mm -hmm. And since then, I've been kind of going back and forth with uh, agents and publishers. Cool. It's, it's, it's a novel. It's, what, 450 pages long. Wow. Which means that feedback and edits is like a month-long process two months to make anything big. right so things just take time and I've been working on um, uh, screenplays a lot this year with with other people including one which was a an adaptation of that novel so turning it into a TV pilot because one of the bits of feedback that I got was that it would work well with the interlocking narratives as a TV pilot Cool. So I, I did that, and then I, we've been working on that with somebody. But it's all of these all things. Right. The, the whole process is is extremely long. All so right. you know you can't just knock something out in two weeks, even if you're working on it solidly. A mm. draft of a novel will take you six months, and mm. that's if you're working on it full time. Mm. Right. So it, it's it, it, it takes time. So ongoing is okay. the okay. way I would say. Wow. How, can you tell us more about the novel? Um, well, the, the novel is about characters in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So it's three uh, different people from different backgrounds who are who have found themselves there, and the the general theme of it is people doing things to try and belong, and how the desperate people will be for that. Sorry, Flo is just peeing in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's the and it's contemporary fiction, so it's modern day. Slightly dark, a little bit funny, but the things that happen to people when they 
get themselves into bad situations. Okay, so well, that, that sense of belonging, basically. Um, uh, why Hong Kong? I mean, so you I, lived there? Yeah, I lived there for a year. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I noticed when I was there was that you get people who are kind of running away from somewhere where there's a, there's a saying, was it, sorry, there's a phrase which is uh, filth. And you refer to a certain subset of people in Hong Kong as filth because it means fail in London, try Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So it's that. Oh man, wow. Right, so it's, and it's the idea of people who are running to this place where they get massively overpaid. Um, it's kind of a playground. So they can pretty much do whatever they want and they get paid tons of money to do it as long as they kind of keep the financial world spinning. So it means a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, a lot of sex, which overlaps into the vice side of the city, which is kind of, you know, drugs obviously is, mm -hmm. there's, that's a natural leap, but you also have a lot of prostitution and um, karaoke clubs, which are also brothels and all of the weirdness. It also reflects weirdly on the, um, Uh, the sexual politics because in Hong Kong you have slightly for every nine men you have ten women mm -hmm. and oh. the way that the the expat women interact with the world around them is they're kind of constantly pushing against all of these overgrown little boys mm -hmm. so where one of the three characters is female because I needed to show that in some way. Mm -hmm. So you've kind of got one English guy, a Canadian woman, and then like an international third culture kid, someone who grew up in international schools all around the world. So mm -hmm. each of these people has kind of come to this place while not really knowing their place and tried to find it and end up swept up in bad things happening. Mm -hmm. Okay. Basically. Oh, well. Is that the reason why you left Hong Kong after a year? No, there was no, there was, uh, I, I can say that, that, that me talking about loads of sex, drugs and prostitution is not me talking about my own experience. Right. It's talking, it's just, I know that this is there and mm -hmm. I've seen the effects that it has on people. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, I left because it's, um, the expat community there is kind of like a, It's like a university town, except everyone's above the age of 25 and has way too much money. Right. And I made some amazing friends there who I still see now. I actually had some friends from Hong Kong visiting this weekend. Oh, nice. Um, but I felt after I left that I didn't really do anything while I was there. All mm. I did was work and party. While, and I came back with all of these notes in a notebook, but then realizing I hadn't written anything the whole time I was there. All I'd done is done the living part. And I knew that if I'd stayed there, that's exactly what would have happened. I would mm -hmm. have just stayed doing that. Right. And Hong Kong Island is so small, you see the same people, you do the same things all the time. The quality of life is really high, but unless you're working in finance, then it's not quite so good for you. Mm -hmm. Were you working in finance? I was working in a writing team at an asset manager. Mm -hmm. um, and then my contract had me taken back to London. So I would have had to look for a new job in Hong Kong from London. And I just thought, I loved that year, but I'm kind of done with it. Mm. Okay. Oh, wow. How does Hong Kong differ uh, from Berlin in the sense of drugs, sex, partying? I was, having a lot, I was having a conversation about this with someone last night. So one of the friends from Hong Kong um, came, to, uh, came over for dinner yesterday, and she was a wreck because she'd been to places in Berlin this mm. weekend. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you can, if, you know, if you know the city, you can fill yeah. in the gaps there. And uh, we were talking about this, and it's the, the openness here is very different. So the, the fact that if you speak to someone, for example, in a club, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It just means that you want to talk to that person or something around you has encouraged you to interact in some way. While in Hong Kong, if a man speaks to a woman, it's for two reasons. It's because she's professionally helpful to him or because he wants to have sex with her, hmm. and vice versa. It's right. a very cynical way of looking at things, but yeah. Maybe I'm a very cynical person, <laughs> and I found it was, it's similar in, in London. I don't okay. know. You get this idea that people interact for set purposes mm -hmm. a lot of the time. I mean, obviously I'm exaggerating mm -hmm. here, but mm -hmm. once you see the patterns, it mm -hmm. becomes kind of difficult. And that overlaps into the way that dating works because it means that for example if a woman in Hong Kong or London likes a man she has to wait for him mm -hmm. 
and it puts the power in the man's hands, which is, after a while, it gets really wearing, and it must be utterly exhausting to be female, knowing that you had to defer all of your power and all of your autonomy over to somebody else. Right. While here, I really like that. There's, I mean, obviously, it's you know, it's not. We don't have full equality in Berlin, but it's more equal, mm-hmm. and you're as likely to be, I mean, this is just an example of it, you're as exactly likely to be hit on in a club by a woman hmm. as a woman is to be hit on in a club by a man here. I think, yeah, I might be completely wrong, but it's it's more just what people want to do, and it's people rather than male-female. Hmm. So that, and that obviously then has effects on the way the clubs feel, because it's not just a place full of people staring around just looking for targets mm-hmm. uh, right. it's people enjoying the atmosphere together mm-hmm. and then if that flows into something no pun on your username flows mm. <laughs> but if it flows into something then it, then, then it happens and it's natural true yeah I have the feeling everyone when they party they just want to have a good time and truly enjoy the music actually. yeah yeah, yeah. so mm. So how was your journey from Hong Kong? You said you went back back to to London and then to Berlin, or how how did it work? Exactly. So I went back to London and carried on doing that job for a while Mm -hmm. in London. Then moved jobs, ended up working at a startup. So going to work, working for a big company, down to working as a writer for a a small startup of 15 people, which was, I mean, you guys know what it's Mm -hmm. like working at a startup. It's kind of this little family Mm -hmm. and families can be utterly crazy and this these guys were great really really lovely and i loved that for a while but then london itself started to kind of uh to to get to me Mm -hmm. and i was thinking okay i need to i need to change i need to do something different and i had an opportunity to move into a place here my lease was running out of my apartment in london Mm -hmm. and this job was changing so i would need to change uh, to find something new And it just happened in October 2017. October 1st, lease ran out, this contract for, for this writing job ended, and I was getting sick of the city anyway. And someone was offering me a place to stay in Berlin from that date for half of my rent in London. Oh, so, perfect. So I just thought, fuck it. <laughs> like, there was no, there was nothing stopping me if there was, and I already loved this city because I already had good friends here. I mean, the person offering me the room was a, was a friend. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a stranger. It wasn't like I was just looking up on Craigslist or anything like that. Mm. I was um, moving in with people I knew, who I liked. And then I arrived and instantly was kind of in this group of friends. So it was really, really lovely. Did mm. you move in right then and there? Did you move in with Tvor? Uh, yes, exactly. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And. Um, Uh, how much are we allowed to talk about the, uh, the exploits <laughs> of the other people? Everything. <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, the weekend after I moved in, um, we were uh, supposed to have a kind of a, a housemates dinner on the Saturday night, but that housemates dinner was slightly kind of docile because um, Tvor and I had ended up on the Friday night at, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon, leaving, leaving Kit Kat, effectively. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, which was kind of like our first bonding moment. And I remember there was a, a, a funny, not like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah just especially in, in Kit Kat can be bonding, bondage. Exactly, yes, yeah, this is true. <laughs> very good, very good. But we had this, um, I remember there was one moment where uh, I was sitting on the, uh, the diving board over the pool and Adfor was kind of over the other side and there was a moment of just tossing a pack of cigarettes from one to the other and it was kind of this, we can do it, we're a team. <laughs> Which, if, if, if he hears this, when he hears this, he will, he will shake his head and say that I'm an idiot. But it's, you know, it's like li- those little bonding things you have with people, it's kind of like, yes, we are. It's like primary school all over again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm beginning to think that so much of the things that become good in life, especially as you get older, are basically the things that you loved in primary school. <laughs> <laughs> is it, do you think? Yeah, I think so. Go ahead, it's the easiest way to, to make a friendship, is basically you don't have any barrier, 
you just come up to a person and throw them, well, in this case a ball or in this case yeah. a pack of cigarettes. Right, and it's you're basically playing, the same yeah. motion. Yeah. You're, just, you're just playing a game. Right. And you're winning the game by catching it. Yeah. Both of you are winning the game. Ah, right. Yeah. I guess. Which is cool. You know, the longer I hear, listen to you, like the more I'm amazed, and I'm sure the listener as well, how great your voice is. <laughs> Honestly, like uh, it's like hypnotic and it's very resonant, resonant, resonating, resonant, resonant. And you have a British accent too, so it, also that helps. Did like, you ever uh, train your voice? Okay. Yeah, that's what I wanted um, to ask. Uh, before I was, I went to university. I was a musician for a while, uh -huh. and we used to do a lot of. Uh, we would kind of like low to mid level bands that you would never have heard of. But um, you still do all of these regional radio interviews because mm -hmm. you say so, you know you go and do like a seriously like a hospital radio station where there's like <laughs> 17 people listening, half asleep because they're all morphine, <laughs> <laughs> and then you will go to Liverpool to a kind of like a third tier radio station to be interviewed by someone because you're playing a show that night and mm -hmm. we did one of those in every city we went to and one year we played 200 shows in, wow within the 365 days which means that you're constantly hearing your own voice back mm -hmm. and it's not like you train your voice but you it kind of you start to speak in a certain way which is I don't find myself shouting very much like I'm more likely to lower my voice because if when you're doing all of these interviews and then you're singing in the evenings you start to kind of hold back your voice mm. and a lot of the time I've been told that I just speak really quietly mm. Oh, interesting part is how to grab someone's attention is by lowering your voice instead of speaking down. Right. There's a quote from the great Gatsby yeah. about Daisy, which says uh, that she spoke quietly so people would have to lean in. Mm. Ah. The thing that sucks is that I first read that quote aged 18, not from the great Gatsby, but from a book on pickup artistry. <laughs> <laughs> which one is that? I can't remember which one, but it was everyone when they're 18 gets goes well every yeah a lot of douchebags when they're 18 or like right. me went through a phase of reading those books thinking that it would be the secret to making people fancy you and so the generation of 18 year olds who basically whisper i think it's that but it's also a generation of people around my age who um went through a phase of using like pickup lines and it's where the whole neg thing came right. from mm -hmm. i think we might have read the same book Yeah. The game, yeah, yeah. they're pretty much all the same. I mean, it was a, the, the, that, that book was a bestseller for right. A while. It was also well written. It was just entertaining. Yeah, yeah but the, the problem is that the book has this. Um, so the book is about for anyone who who doesn't know this book, it's a guy who was a journalist who was kind of, uh, for, in his own words, very unattractive, had no luck with women, and he was doing a piece for, I think it was Rolling Stone, on this secret society of pickup artists. So he kind of infiltrated the secret society and was writing about them, but then got swept up in it himself, and the first two-thirds of the book is his learning the methods of this. So people will read this and think, holy crap, this is the secret manual, this is the Bible for getting girls, and they get really into it. The final third of the book is, it kind of goes down into this period where he's just living in this house with these pickup artists and he meets a woman and he's having trouble with her and it's less interesting from a pure keep reading perspective so people stop reading so they get two-thirds of the way through the book and they think the key is just to think of women as objects and to use lines on them and sleep with as many as possible so they go off on that path but because they didn't read the last part They forget that, that, well, they never see that the ending yeah. is that he meets this woman and has trouble with her because he's using lines on her and because he's trying to be someone else. Right. And it's not until he stops all of that and just starts being the person he always was that he succeeds. Right. So the message is actually these things are great to gain confidence, but really you need to become comfortable with yourself right. to fall in love. But most people didn't actually get to that yeah. point, so they ended up running off, and that's how we have forums of pickup artists who uh, objectify well, women exactly yeah mm. it's pretty bad not yeah. us not us yeah we finished the book <laughs> yeah <laughs> i actually thought the last part was the best because it really yeah did you read it as well Floki? i didn't oh, read, read that book actually no yeah um, so sexy writer boy uh where did you grow up and what, what did you do before before hong kong so i was born in north london mm -hmm. in holloway mm -hmm. 
Um, I can't remember the name of the hospital, but it's in Holloway. It's <laughs> anyway, it's there. And then when I was uh, when I was quite young, my family moved uh, up to North North London into, mm-hmm. in a place called Barnet. So if you know London, it's Barnet. It's in this train terminate at High Barnet, mm-hmm. and um, went to school there and started playing music when I was about. 14 with in bands with friends like I always played piano since I was a kid since I was seven and then when I left school we took a gap year to uh, try and in this band to try and you know do something so we just renovated a garage like a um, like a double garage that we just put loads of all of our equipment in and we spent a year working in service jobs and recording rehearsing playing the occasional show and then at the end of that year when we were just about to go to university we got signed by an independent record label so we thought okay let's keep doing this for a while so we um, then recorded an album with them we toured we put out the album and then did that cycle with uh, a different singer our singer decided that he that it was too much for him because it's it's a it's a lifestyle that is there's no structure to it really, except you're doing it every day, you're putting all of your energy into this. And he he just said, listen guys, this is, I need to have more of a kind of like a low key life. So we got another singer, changed their name, got a new manager, got signed again, and then did it again. So that was, that accounted for four years. Mm-hmm. So I went to university, um, when that kind of came to its eventual end, um, I went to university uh, to study management. My plan was to go and work in the music industry. Mm-hmm. But um, by the time I finished that, the music industry was still, I mean, this was kind of showing my age. This was in 2014 was when I graduated. Mm-hmm. And the music industry was still totally screwed because between the years of 2001 and I think it was 2015 when it kind of it posted its first growth mm-hmm. the music industry collapsed was gutted and then grew up again around a digital model mm-hmm. so um, I wrote my dissertation on that and then left university and got a job at this writing team at this asset manager mm-hmm. and that was the job that got me sent to Hong Kong so I was in London for a year in Hong Kong for a year then came back to London mm-hmm. Okay. I heard it. Sorry about the music industry. It was mostly because of Napster and and all those and all those stories. Yeah. So it was um, the problem was that you when you have a physical product like mm-hmm. like a CD. So like obviously, if you think about it, a like a vinyl going to tape going to CDs, it's kind of the same product. It's mm-hmm. a physical thing that you buy. You have packaging. You hold it in your hand, and then you put it in a player. The moment you had downloads available, then people don't have a physical thing to hold on to, which means that they don't they don't value the product itself so much because they don't have an attachment to it, mm. which means that they're completely fine with pirating it. So you would find that people back in the day were less likely to pirate something like copy a CD than they were with a with a download. And the moment you make it possible for people to do that then the industry was totally screwed because the value that you add to someone by them buying a the thing, the product, when the product is just a name on your computer, it's not something that you can see and feel, mm-hmm. then people don't really give a shit. So then the music industry had to rebuild itself around the streaming model and then but while streaming on its own doesn't necessarily make that much money, mm-hmm. the you can't base an industry which employs thousands of people around that and still get the artists to get paid. Mm-hmm. The way that it then moved was moving towards kind of an experience model. Mm-hmm. So one of the things things you'll find is that the Spotify model, for example, is streaming and um, adverts, mm-hmm. or you buy the premium version. Mm-hmm. And you get that, but the reason that people do that isn't necessarily because you can find anything. It's because Spotify curates playlists and it has makes suggestions for you, and those suggestions are good. That's the value. That's why you do it. And it's the same with something like YouTube. Like a lot of people use YouTube for music, and they even have YouTube Music now. Mm-hmm. And the reason that that works and that makes YouTube so much money is because they do it well. Right. If you're just giving someone one song, 
so that they can listen to it forever. That's not the way we consume music anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. So it it just doesn't work anymore. I mean, I also never understood the concept of uh, you buy a CD and then you only listen to one song, but you have to buy the whole CD, right, yeah. for the whole album. Didn't make any sense. But no. how how old are you? I'm 25. That, uh, yeah, it's and and this this isn't me saying like how old are you? Haha, <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> I just mean you. It's it's a it's a paradigm thing. It's the way you think about music. The way that my parents would think about music was, it is the CD. You see what I mean? So there's something. It's like a right. it's a, it's like a different psychology around the way you think about music. It's right. the, the the vinyl is. The music, right? So you have to have this to produce the music, right? It's why when you, it's like when you try and introduce someone who's over the age of sixty to anything online, it doesn't. There's kind of like a mental bridge that they don't have, right, 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 right. And that's not knocking people over the age of sixty. I'm sure there are plenty of mm. over sixty rectag users who are incredibly good, <laughs> incredibly, <laughs> incredibly good with the, with uh, technology. Mm. But it's just, it's just, and also the idea that the music itself is, the music is a different way of thinking about it, which is how you grew up with music. Right. I, mm. I, I mean, it's the same with, um, as good as Netflix is for movies, it's so easy to stream any movie, right? Mm. But there was something special about going to the video store and just looking at the videos that just came out recently which are available and then renting a video, going home, putting it in the DVD player and then watching it and then bringing it back. It was such an experience. Yeah. And now we just go online, netflix.com, and then on a mouse click we just watch the movie we want to watch, which is great, but then it just lacks this experience, I feel. It's the same with, with going to the cinema. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the... Um when it comes to going to a place, sitting in a dark room with a bunch of other people, watching it and then leaving again, right. it makes the, the cinematic experience more of a journey. Right. So it's, um, for example, it's one of the reasons why going to the cinema to watch a documentary is, it has to be cinematic. Like if you saw Senna or if you see, um, God, I'm trying to think of another one which is as good as that. Like, or again, same director, Amy, or something like that. Mm -hmm. like one of those documentaries, it feels like a cinematic experience, right. which makes it fit the cinema. Right. But a film, if you watch it in your apartment with, you know, on a laptop, and you're getting up every now and again to, you know, go to the bathroom or something like that, and it's you don't engage with it quite so much. Right. Speaking and of a dark room, uh, I loved your dark room joke, by the way. <laughs> I really like the. Which one? Um, just to clarify, maybe yeah. you are into comedy as well. So basically, a common you're trying to yes. be a, a comedian now. Just as a, no, I'm not trying to. So um, just as a bit of background to this, I will answer the question. Yeah. But um, I, in writing, especially when writing for screen, mm -hmm. the way that funny stuff comes across coming out of a real person's mouth is very different to the way it comes across on the page. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to do was make my funny writing better mm -hmm. because it's I haven't been working with in a writing room with people so you're not throwing ideas back and forward and that kind of thing and one of the ways to do that is by exercising the kind of the funny muscle by writing jokes right. and practicing the idea of taking a concept finding the funny element of that then taking it further and then taking it further, and then taking it further in directions that an audience doesn't expect. Right. Because mm -hmm. a funny thing that you expect isn't funny; it's just no. something you've heard before. Right. So that's it's that thing. So that so, and so I've done a couple of stand-up shows, and uh, I if I do it again, I will write something entirely new because that's the thing that I want to practice. Mm -hmm. It's not the actual performance element of it; it's the writing those jokes and then seeing what's funny. Right. But, don't you think it makes a difference if you well because of course you in stand-up comedy you are the one talking the joke so a lot of elements to to stand-up comedy other than the actual content it's about the mimic uh, your mimic gestures your gestures mimic. how you yeah. how you basically the, the intonation and everything mm. do you think um, it's a good way of, of practicing the how funny uh, a joke would be in written because that's actually interesting. Sure, because uh, especially if you write for the screen, you do envision a character speaking those lines, right? And you envision them speaking in a certain way, mm -hmm. delivering in a certain way. 
So you have to think of that as well, I'm sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, that that that's mostly it, really. Mm -hmm. it's, okay. it's just that idea that if, for example, you have something funny happening in the action of mm -hmm. a screenplay, then you that's a skill you 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 basically have to rely on a director to mm -hmm. be good at that. While if you're relying on the dialogue, if it's a funny line and mm -hmm. it can be delivered well by an actor who has, I don't know, the ability to be funny, mm -hmm. then. That's yeah. how you find out, basically. Right. And one way of doing that is by delivering it yourself and seeing... Seeing how it works. Yeah. So, okay. for example, one of the things that I found, um, I was saying to Pasky, the thing that I found with uh, a few of the jokes is that they're so specific um, to experiences of Berlin that a few people found them really hilarious mm -hmm. and other people kind of just half smiled or looked confused mm -hmm. because they didn't <laughs> understand. And um, one of the things that I have heard a lot is that what you do with comedy is that you supply 50% of it and then you rely on the audience having the other 50%. Because if you just tell them, this is funny because this, mm -hmm. then it's not. If you say 50% of it and then they work out the other 50% of why it's funny, they that's when it becomes right. hilarious. Right. So, for example, in this, are you, are you talking about the... I mean, a dark room, I guess, was wrong. Urinal is Urinal. the better, yeah, yeah. but because I, I have a dark room in mind, I guess, because yeah. uh, we're talking I mean, about... I mean, if you have the dark room in yeah. mind, you can turn the lights out in this room. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a window there, maybe people might get freaked out. <laughs> but I, I love the, the image of it. Right. Like, well, so... Well, I mean, so this is, this is... Ex this is an example of exactly what I mean, yeah. which is that this joke was centered around real experiences of something that happens sometimes in a certain type of club in Berlin. Mm -hmm. yeah. Am I okay talking about this? You, <laughs> you okay. <laughs> which is that um, there is a fetish which um, I completely fully support. Whatever makes people happy and gives them pleasure I think is great, which is of uh, drinking urine. So it's like a, I, I don't know what what's behind it, I don't share it personally, but it's around the experience of not being able to go while someone is asking you to uh, pee in their face. Mm -hmm. And that was a joke which, again, some people thought was really hilarious, yeah. and I found that the difference in delivery in the two times made a big difference, made a, a change to how people found it. And an example of this, um, kind of 50% you give the audience 50% they work out the other 50% was uh, a line in, in within the bit which was after kind of saying that there's you know a guy in the bathrooms who kind of waits for you to, to with his mouth open to, for you to pee in his mouth the line was um, it makes sense Germans love recycling mm -hmm. <laughs> Right, so that's not saying Germans love recycling and peeing in someone's mouth is recycling. Mm, right. What you're doing is you're giving fifty percent, and then the audience. There's a second they work it out, and then they laugh. Right. Mm -hmm. So working out those things and being able to put them into screenplays is useful. Right. Right. Basically. Yeah. I was also amazed. I told you the very first time we went on, you were so confident on stage. It seemed like you've done it so many times before, and I guess if you've you went on stage two hundred times plus um, yeah. doing music, that explains why you were so confident on stage and yeah, it seemed so natural. It's definitely something that that comes up, and it it builds up over time. So the the thing about being on stage in front of people, and it wasn't two hundred times; it was two hundred times per year for <laughs> four years. Mm -hmm. wow. So it's um, wow, or or that was the one year was two hundred, and then it was so it's a lot basically. Yeah. And one of the things you're also doing then is you're speaking into the microphone at mm -hmm. the audience, mm -hmm. and you're not telling jokes, but you get used to how to do that, mm -hmm. and again, it's the same with doing radio interviews or something like that. You you learn to, it, you, you don't get affected or worried by it anymore. And I imagine if I was speaking in front of more people or if you know people had come to see me, mm. it was just an open mic night. Mm. Uh, you know, everyone's friendly. People are there because they want to laugh. Right. So really, it's not, it's, you know, you can get a lot worse than that. Mm. You've, you hear all these horror stories of people showing up to comedy nights um, where they're being paid to do it and everyone is kind of expecting something really incredible and they don't get it and they start heckling and being like you're, you're rubbish or whatever <laughs> and I imagine that must be terrifying right but with there it's such a non-judgmental room that you just right. think I mean do you get 
Yeah, I mean, in Berlin, generally, people are so friendly in the audience. I, I was at a comedy event in London once as an audience member, and, oof, wow, tough crowd. I mean, they were heckling like crazy, and but then if you were really good, they would, I mean, celebrate you like, yeah. yeah. So you have both sides, but oof, really tough, I really think tough. in Berlin, it's because it's such an international crowd, and the Berliners let's say 5% of the people in that room were native English speakers and it was in English mm -hmm. and they it's almost like there's a respect for people doing this that they sit and they listen I mean right. the occasionally you get some people chatting and stuff but it's people whispering there's no heckling or being like you're rubbish while if it's English comedy in London everyone has already seen a lot of good comedy nights right. and they're kind of arrogant about their own ability to be funny as well. Mm -hmm. So they're thinking, I want to show this room that I'm also funny, so I'm going to heckle the comedian. Right, right. It's like this, and I find that in the UK, where I'm from, so I can say this, and in the US, where I'm not, but I'm going to say it anyway, <laughs> there's more of like an individualistic sense when you're in a social setting. It's about me standing out in this room. Mm -hmm. While here, Obviously, you get places where it's like this. You know, you go out in West Berlin, you get the same tables with bowl service with the sparklers and all that stuff, and it's all about showing off. Mm -hmm. But in general, in social settings, it's not really like that. I think it's very interesting because I believe in, again, that's me being cynical here. I think it's always about you. Um, I mean, we are, tend to be very egoistic animals, basically. Um, I think I had an example on that. I actually wrote a thesis on this uh, while I was in school uh, about how, how you raise money for a good cause, basically. How publicity evolved over the time and the legal implications on that. And it, it used to be uh, big, big screen um, photos of, of uh, hungry children in Africa with sort of swollen bellies and awful pictures. They changed that to happy faces. So people, especially kids, smiling, being thankful because you just donated money. Yeah. And an American company actually took that another step further and they made an advertisement didn't really matter exactly what what you were donating for it was feel like a superhero because you're donating it's about you how you feel while giving money and uh -huh. it turns out it they, they made so much money it it well it went when i think 250 times better than than any other ad that was ever produced That's interesting which is one could be cynical for this but i think i mean it's a way to get to the goal yeah. and so many cause too so I, I wow, that's super interesting. That's, that is yeah. that is really interesting, but I think that it's a slightly different thing. Okay. So um, I am obviously very cynical about the way that people are, uh -huh. um, and with this, what you're doing is you're trying to illustrate the value of something mm -hmm. to a person. So, for example, if you show a picture of a of a sick kid in Tanzania, that doesn't show the value to the person. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be this way, really. We don't need the money that we have as Western cultures. We could share a lot of it with third world countries. Mm -hmm. But on an individual level, showing the negativity of you not donating doesn't show you the value of doing it. Mm -hmm. And the one step further, which is uh, showing, them, showing the kids happy, it is better. But the way that our nature is, is that we want to see the value for ourselves. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about in, in this setting, in the social setting, is more about um, in a room, being the most important and visible person in that room. In Germany, for example, or specifically in Berlin, which is not really Germany, Berlin is Berlin. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like that. It's like in a bar, it's not about the, if you see people kind of being really brash and loud and really shouting out and being kind of showing off, mm -hmm. it doesn't, there's no value to that. It's not something that people see and think, oh, I want to be, be hanging out with that guy or girl or, or, I, or you know, I want to be that person. Mm -hmm. And it's the same in clubs. Like it's not about, it's one of the things I found is that if someone starts to chant in a club, nobody follows them. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed this. If someone goes like, eh, oh, eh, oh, or whatever, everyone, nobody follows them. Or if someone starts clapping in a club, 
it's there's this general sense of kind of like yeah yeah fine okay stop now stop yeah. stop mm-hmm. because it's anything that makes people stand out from the crowd to everybody else mm-hmm. I mean people interact on an individual level you can like connect with people very easily and very closely but anything that makes you kind of a performer isn't necessarily valued that highly mm-hmm. obviously something like comedy is different because you're actually you've gone there to have someone make you laugh right. but if it's kind of like a heckler it's not I don't you don't get it so much because people don't stand out but like you that. but you think it's it's not because it's not about I mean, I believe that in any kind of performance whether it be a musician or a comedy evening um, you tend to go there because you identify with the person on that stage I think at some point you have, you feel a connection the person is singing just for you the person there is someone there basically okay. and I believe especially bring it people who bring dates to comedy nights right. that that's exactly the same reason maybe it's easy to bring someone to a comedy night because you show your date a good time without actually being the one who is funny but still she would in my case a, a woman uh, would perceive the evening as good and possibly perceive me my uh, me <laughs> as as a, a funny dude simply because i actually brought her to to one of our company nights like funny by association you mean absolutely yeah. and okay. i think i think it's still about you whether you sit in an audience for a musical performance or it's a comedy night and a heckler is a very aggressive way of of getting attention from people but i still believe that every person that sits in in the room of these comedy events or a lot of them at least want to be sort of want to be not in the spotlight but still be the center of that story know I, what I mean so I I do agree with you to an extent in the sense mm-hmm. that they want to be the center of their own story like everyone is the main character in their own story mm-hmm. and if that story has a secondary character who is called Emily mm-hmm. who is main character's love interest mm-hmm. hopefully then of course mm-hmm. but I don't think that they impose it on other people as much in this city. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right? So it's, it's, right. so it's that thing about, you know, if they're heckling, they're probably doing it for their friends, mm-hmm. for example, in another place. But here they don't even do that because there's a, there's a politeness as well, which is that it's not done that way. So <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't think it comes from, like, English politeness, which is, no, that's not how we do things. That's, that it's, we don't do things this way. Mm-hmm. It comes more from just respect. Uh-huh. I think I think it's because it's a uh, unfamiliar territory. I mean, you go to a, it would be interesting actually to go to go to a German comedy night and and see how people behave there. Because if if that would change or not, I mean, I believe that of course, as you said, uh, you had a a, a lot of uh, if you are in in London and going to a British comedy night, you are on familiar territory because you can speak the language, so you feel more comfortable acting. If I would be heckling a comedian in a British uh, in a, in an English comedy night, I would be on a very slippery road because my English is not perfect yeah. and I have an accent, so there's a lot of lot of vulnerability actually there. That's an interesting point as well because some of the people, because obviously, Pasky, you also do comedy and you're speaking in your second language, right? Or third language? Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess, but but it's my first or second best language now, so. Okay. Yeah. So, but but still, it wasn't your you know it wasn't you that your mother tongue. No, no. Put it, right. Yeah. So, the way that people who are non-native speakers deliver comedy to this audience, when I've seen it happen, it's it's really fascinating because I know that I speak quite quickly and I've had to slow it down and to simplify things to play down word games. Like there was one Australian comedian who I saw who I thought and uh, Tfor also thought was unbelievably funny but we were the only two laughing in the room we were crying because it was all pun- it was all puns uh, I think I know which one. I also I love him but uh, the audience didn't like him enjoy him that evening that I just, much and I it wasn't why. a case of you can tell when someone hears a joke that they don't find funny because yeah. there's like a little groan there's a little facial like Ugh. but people just didn't react because they didn't realize that it was a joke and uh, that's it's a language thing Mm-hmm. While a lot of the people who are English is a se- they're finding funny things in the English language as a second language, they connect more. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a little bit of could what be. you're saying. Uh, yeah, could be, could be. Yeah, it's actually interesting. Well, if anyone's listening, and uh, as you mentioned, 
uh, needs ideas uh, for a good date. <laughs> <laughs> We're hosting Sexy Voice Comedy every second Thursday in Space Medusa in Kreuzberg. So uh, feel free to come and then uh, feel free to feel funny by association, as Flo put it. But no hecklers. <laughs> <laughs> no hecklers. Hecklers are not welcome. <laughs> I can say that Pasky has one of the best opening lines. Ah, uh, um, <laughs> But I'm not going to show it here because... <laughs> You have to come and listen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And how is it? I mean, you write for several formats. I mean, it's so different to write for in finance than it is to write comedy. For uh, I, I imagine, or is it? Are there many overlapping characteristics? Um, those two are pretty different. <laughs> <laughs> But the the principle isn't that different. Like the real underlying things about what makes something compelling are not that different. Those, you pick two which are the, the furthest away from each other. Right. But if you, for example, step the things in between, so you have you know, an article which is writing about the Chinese debt ceiling raising for mm -hmm. someone to understand, which is super technical, and then you move into articles which are more engaging about a consumer product, for example, explaining something to someone where it can be a little bit funny, it can be, it can speak to you directly, you know, like the German do versus what would be the Z, you know, that, that, mm -hmm. but, you know, that kind of thing, like, like less formal language. And then you move into something like fiction where you can use the voice very clearly. So you can talk about what people are thinking, you can give thoughts on something which are not necessarily your own, you can't, you, you're not massively objective here, you're, you know, you can have characters who are total douchebags, but you still like them because mm -hmm. you're seeing the world from their perspective. And then you move into something like comedy, which is taking something and you're only picking out the funny bits. Mm -hmm. And you can put comedy into those things, but you can see it gets more and more informal mm -hmm. and more and more, almost more and more real and more personal as you get through. But the key things to anything which is, has a storyline is that uh, even if you're writing financial writing, if you read an article in, um, like a, I don't know, in the UK, be the Financial Times, you know, you, they do pick characters. They do find people to focus on. And the reason for that is that if you don't have a character, if you're just talking about you know, what the European Central Bank is doing, the European Central Bank isn't a person. Mm -hmm. So they pick a politician or they pick an economist and they get them to speak and they get them to, because we identify with people. You see uh, what I mean? Right, that's very interesting. I've never thought of it that way, but I think, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about all the articles I usually read and that makes sense I think it's the same thing for startups why do we have such an obsession on founders yeah. well it actually is rarely the founders do uh, of course they start the whole thing but it's the people who who, who you get into the firm that, that do most of the work and everybody focuses on those founders because they're the face of that company right? ah, that's very modest of you no no but, it, but it's, it's, it's totally true Well, but, it's, but it's also the, um, the how compelling those founders' stories are, mm -hmm. and then you focus on those things. So the, the three most basic elements of any story, so rather than a thing that happened and it being a story, is um, character, conflict, and change. So a character comes across some kind of conflict, faces that conflict, and is changed because of it. I mean, that's the three that you can expend, ex uh, extend into you know, three acts, you can extend it into five acts, you can extend it into the ten Dan Harmon's wheel of story and all of these <laughs> things. There's a million different models you can use. Yeah. But, for example, you take a... If you ever listen to a podcast called... I know this is the only podcast anyone should ever listen mm -hmm. to, <laughs> but there's one called How I Built This, and it's interviews... Uh, NPR, is it? NPR, yeah. right, yeah. And it's, uh, uh, it's Guy Raz, and he's interviewing uh, founders of companies. And it's, it's everyone from um, the woman who invented Spanx. Mm -hmm. Sorry, exactly. Exactly. I, I think you've listened to you've, you've uh, No, but I, I love her. She's I, really... I would, hi I would highly, highly recommend it to... Um, Uh, to Richard Branson and Richard that kind of thing. So it's, but it's all of these people, and it's their story. And the things that you can, you know, when you listen to a lot of them, is that they all share a similar structure, which is, you know, they have, the, especially the ones that are the 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 things that people really push is that they had a problem, mm -hmm. and you know, a startup is all about solving problems, and that's mm -hmm. the conflict. So you have the character, you give them a problem, 
then because of this thing that they built, this company, they were changed and then they brought it out into the world. Mm -hmm. And the reason why this is so commonly used is that if the founder's story, the founder's problem map matches the one of the product, Mm -hmm. then it means that they can say, hey, I had this problem, I fixed it for myself and for the world. Right. Makes perfect sense, yeah. So it's kind of, and that's why it's so, I mean, the only variations on that is when you have people like uh, Elon Musk, mm-hmm. who, I mean, I guess with, I mean, PayPal, no one really talks about him as kind of like his PayPal story was really interesting. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's, we were talking earlier about being, um, returning to primary school and the things that you had fun with. Mm-hmm. The guy started a company to make electric cars mm-hmm. and then he started a rocket company. Mm-hmm. Does that not just sound like what you would do if you said to a seven-year-old... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a seven-year-old boy or girl, hey, do you want to do these things? Do you want to make rockets or do you want to make electric cars? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's that. That's and it, true. And it's kind of like, th- those are a bit different, but the rest of them, it's all just problem-solving and mm-hmm. you know, facing conflict. And that's why those things become compelling. Yeah, right, absolutely. On that note, uh, I think we're a little bit over time because we have talked almost an hour now. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot, we could, I mean, we, I could, could go, on. I could go yeah, on with you for forever because it's, it's super, super interesting. Yeah. Maybe we'll do a second episode at some point. Sure, if, if, um, if people actually uh, like this one. <laughs> <laughs> they will, yeah, I think they, they will. will, I think they will. Uh, well, thanks a lot anyway, and uh, it will go, um, so we're gonna edit the whole thing basically, and it's cut it so it will take a little while, but in two weeks we want to publish it. Uh, on that note, we're gonna end this podcast today, uh, we're gonna continue next time hopefully, um, you're always welcome to come again. Thanks. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, this was, this was a lot of fun chatting to you guys. Yeah, that was amazing, uh, all these infos and stories, and uh, we look forward to your, your novel. Thank you. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, I'm Pasky. My name is Fogin Ondai. And um, on my side, I'm Sexy Red. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, everyone. Thanks a lot. Bye. 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 Bye.